0: I'm guessing I don't need to ask whether I have your attention after that reading, do I? Uh, Shall we we pray? Our Father, you are very great and your word is truth. And these verses are uh, painful to read. And we pray that you give us insight into them as uh, as we seek to understand what you might be teaching us through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And do uh, on the back of your service sheets, you should find an outline of where we're going, which I hope will be helpful. It's a shocking passage, isn't it? Shocking. And perhaps as you uh, heard Anna read it, you were thinking, uh, how could God allow this to happen? I guess it's a question that from time to time comes to all of us, whether you're a Christian of long standing or somebody who is very new to Christian things and just looking into. Christianity, we're grateful you're with us, if that is you. But it is a hot-button question, isn't it? If God exists, how can such a terrible thing be allowed to happen? I guess this week of, of all weeks, that's a more pointed question still. And if that's a question you've got, I'd love to talk to you after the service. And this passage will touch on that question, but it doesn't seek to answer it. I guess it's a question that's raised for us, but it isn't the question that Matthew wants to address. Uh, This passage is at the middle of five uh, prophecy fulfilment passages in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew is seeking to show us that uh, these five uh, prophecies uh, fulfilled in the early years of Jesus' life, before he had any authority over his diary, uh, where he was born, uh, where he lived, uh, Matthew wants to show us that Jesus truly is the King long promised in the Old Testament. And in these three verses, uh, the story focuses down uh, not onto what God is doing, and therefore we don't ask the question, uh, how can God allow this to happen? But on King Herod, the reigning king of Israel. It focuses on his opposition to the young pretender to the throne, Jesus. And though it doesn't address the question of suffering in general, there is a very specific question that it does want to address to some extent. What sort of opposition should Christians expect in this life? And perhaps in turn, as we read the passage, God will be allowed out of the dock and we might be placed in it. And we might be asked the question, are you prepared to suffer for being a Christian? The passage presents to us two possible kings. And ask us which one we'd like to follow. Will we try and follow both of them, as though we can have them both on their own terms and have the best of both? Will we take the path of earthly power? Or will we follow the humble King Jesus? So what we'll do uh, this afternoon is just walk through these three verses uh, to look at the story a bit, put it in its context, and then try and draw out a number of implications for us today. So let's look at the story. And as we've seen, uh, the passage is squarely focused on Herod. Uh, He's uh, he's the main focus, verse 16. Uh, But we're introduced to him back in verse 1. At that point, he's interacting with a number of people, the Magi, his advisors, the people of Jerusalem. Uh, But in verse 16, the focus is squarely and solely on him. And the big point that these three verses wants to make is that it's a battle, isn't it? Herod versus Jesus, uh, the men who would be king. Back in verse 1, uh, we're introduced to him as King Herod. And that point is reinforced for us again in verse 3, King Herod. And, and those two, uh, two references to him uh, sandwich uh, a question from the Magi, did you notice? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, verse, uh, chapter 2 then is set up as uh, two rival kings of the Jews. Who will be the true king? You have a choice. Uh, the vicious, politically savvy Roman ruler Herod and a little baby. And it's at this point in verse 16 uh, that the Herod versus Jesus narrative really comes into sharp focus. Uh, verse sixteen. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted, I wonder how long it took him to realise. Uh, maybe a day, possibly two at the outside. Uh, Jerusalem is uh, less than five miles as the crow flies from Bethlehem, so I guess the Magi could have been uh, to Bethlehem and back again in a day. Maybe they stay over for the night, chat to Mary and Joseph into the wee small hours. So maybe two days. If you were making a film of verses 1 to 18 then, uh, you'd expect the action to move quite quickly. Uh, Joseph flees with his family in the middle of the night uh, and uh, the death squad is sent in the morning. And Herod, uh, Herod was a, a paranoid uh, conspiracy theorist. Had his, his favourite wife killed. Had three of his children killed because they had a, a greater claim on the throne than he did. Here is Herod's. Uh, outwitted. It makes him sound like a a poor chess player, doesn't it, uh, in our translation. But uh, the word really, in the Greek, has more of a sense of made him look an idiot. That's what it says. Made him look foolish, made him look stupid. And Herod's response to being made to look stupid is completely in keeping with what we know of his character from elsewhere. It's been suggested that uh, this incident is so horrific that you'd expect there to be lots and lots of other records of this incident. But the truth is, although it is truly horrible, it, it is small beans for a man like Herod. He is a vicious man. When he was dying, it said that Herod gave the command that somebody was to be killed in every household in Israel so that there would be true mourning at the time of his death. Fortunately, that didn't happen because... Once he died, people didn't feel afraid of him anymore. <laughs> he wasn't a nice man, it's fair to say. And, and he's a man given to furious, uncontrolled emotional outbursts. Did you see that? He was furious, very angry, and governed by his anger. He sent soldiers to the little town of Bethlehem, population under a thousand probably at this point in time. The man whose job it was to protect. At the people, sends a death squad to murder the most vulnerable people in the society. And the way Matthew phrases it in the Greek, it's as if the sword is in Herod's own hand. At Sending, he killed. Okay, the soldiers do the deed, but the Greek, in Matthew's understanding, Herod is the guilty man. He has blood on his hands. And do you see how, how thorough Herod is? If you keep reading with me. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That, that verb learned there is the same as back in verse 7. When Herod calls the Magi secretly and finds out from the exact time the star had appeared. He's a very careful man. He has his spies out. But he, he interrogates the Magi. And he knows exactly the time the star rose. And so he knows that Jesus is probably about two years old. And to be on the safe side, he kills every boy in the town under two years old. I guess that's maybe 20 children at the time. He's very precise and he kills a lot of people. Think of uh, the international outbreak. uh, We prayed about it just a few moments ago. Uh, In Paris, 17 people dead in a number of shooting incidents And you have right now a rally walking through the streets of Paris with all these world leaders at the head of it, uh, praying for unity and seeking unity in the face of horror. Can you see how this is worth? Uh, The person who is in charge of protection has killed a bunch of vulnerable children who've done nothing wrong. And the thing is, It's not unusual. It doesn't even get recorded in the history books of Herod's reign. He's just that sort of person. But he's very thorough. He kills all the boys in the whole region. Uh, He's sure to capture Jesus, isn't he? By killing all those children. And do you notice, to be one of God's people then, uh, to be one of Rachel's children, verse 18, is to be disposable expendable in the name of political expediency. It is to be weak and remote from the centre of power. It is to be under the boot of the tyrant. It is to be humbled and humiliated. And whilst the focus is on Herod here, the wider context, uh, the focus is on Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Where is Jesus in the story? He's not uh, not in Bethlehem at the time, uh, but he's been in Bethlehem. These are the children that Jesus went to preschool with. These are his friends. These are his people. He identifies with this crowd. While Herod takes the throne by cunning and deception and keeps it in the same way, Jesus becomes weak, becomes a baby, becomes a nobody in order to identify with his people. Who would you have as king? Herod is is a nasty piece of work. He's truly one of history's outstanding bad guys. Jesus comes as a humble ruler, not in power and wealth, not in Jerusalem, but in a a backwater town like Bethlehem. Not grasping at the monarchy, but identifying with his people and loving them. So perhaps it comes as a surprise to see who the people of Jerusalem stand with. Just look back at verse 3 with me, would you? When Herod heard, uh, where is the king of the Jews, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now you can understand why Herod is disturbed by Jesus turning up, can't you? Here is a threat to the throne. Even though he's just an infant now, he needs to be stopped before he grows to be a man and usurps Herod. But why would all Jerusalem be disturbed with him? Perhaps... Uh, They know what Herod is like, and if Herod is uh, antagonised, then they're all going to be on the receiving end of something horrible. Perhaps that's the case. Perhaps they're, they're afraid that Jesus will grow up to be a man and there'll be a great civil war. And they don't want their houses divided and people killed. That's also possibly true. But in Matthew's Gospel, Jerusalem tends to represent the cultural and religious elites standing against Jesus. They don't want the revolution that Jesus proposes. Of course, Herod is the king, but they are the people who benefit from Herod being in charge. They like the status quo. Uh, Thank you very much. A king born in a garden shed in a backwater town, identifying with the plebs of the people, uh, one who will grow up to say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, That is a threat to them too, isn't he? And why wouldn't you identify with Herod? Why wouldn't you want him to be the king? After all, Jesus has nothing to offer. He's a baby. He has nothing. It makes total sense to identify with Herod and want Herod to remain in power. Go with the flow. Work within the system. Benefit from the system so much for the three verses, but Matthew doesn't want us to to stop there. He wants to show us in the context that the exact opposite is true. We might think that Herod has all the power, but what Herod can't see, what the elites in Jerusalem can't see, but what we can see, thanks to Matthew, is that Herod is opposing God himself. And so God versus Herod, where the real power is. Just look back at verse 16 with me, would you? when Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi. Except, of course, that he wasn't outwitted by the Magi, was he? That little word, by, in English has has a variety of uses. It covers over a multitude of English sins, as it were. But in the Greek, it is very specific. It's a way of saying the Magi, in in Herod's mind at least, were the instigators of what they did. They thought to trick Herod, uh, to shame him, embarrass him and sneak away. But the major didn't set out to make Herod look stupid, did they? It was God who sent the star to Jerusalem, so the Magi came to Herod in the first place. It was God who warned them not to go back to Herod in verse 12. It was God who sent the angel to Joseph who said, flee in the night, like, get away because Herod wants to kill him. God knows, you see, God knows what Herod wants to do, God knows when he's going to do it, and God knows how to get out of the way of it. Herod is made to look an idiot, not by the Magi, but because he's gone up against God. The God who knows his heart and is able to move objects in space to accomplish his purposes. Herod could no more lay a hand on Jesus without God's consent than he could jump over the moon. Uh, But there's more going on in this passage to reinforce the point that God is in complete control. Uh, Consider the parallels. If if you're an Israelite reading Matthew's Gospel, and that was the audience he had in mind, uh, straight away you think back to Pharaoh, don't you? Uh, Small boys being murdered by a tyrant. uh, A threat to the throne. Uh, Pharaoh uh, wipes out a whole generation of young boys To stop them rising up against him. And the rescuer who escapes, Moses, in the the case of the Exodus. The same language is used here as is used of uh, of Moses escaping from Pharaoh. And so it is here. Jesus escapes. Moses delivers, uh, delivers his people and brings down the house of Pharaoh. And so it will be with Jesus and earthly powers. Another slaughter. Another significant deliverer spared. The same language being used. Matthew's very clever. And if you are an Israelite, you hear the echoes. And you see that this is the way God works. Powerful people standing up against God, time after time after time. And God outwits them, time after time after time. It is his modus operandi, to deliver his enslaved people through one of their own, despite terrible suffering. Matthew makes the point, God is in charge. And to make the point more clearly still, remember this is the middle of five fulfilment passages. So look down at verse 18 with me. Her voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Matthew is quoting Jeremiah 31.15. The verse is heartbreaking, isn't it? Even just read by itself, quite apart from the context of these Bethlehemite babies. It's deeply sad. The people of God have been gathered at Ramah in order to go into exile, deported to Babylon. And Jeremiah looks back to to Rachel, the mother of the, the nation, as it were, uh, buried her somewhere between Ramah and Bethlehem, incidentally. And he, he has her crying out from the grave for those who have gone into exile and will never return. Uh, for those who've died in battle before the exile. Uh, Jeremiah looks back and he looks at what's happened to his people, the end of the nation, and he cries. It is the low point of God's people in history. But it's a strange thing, in, a strange verse in Jeremiah 31, which is basically a very exciting passage. Yes, Rachel is weeping for the, the exile, but Jeremiah 31 is full of hope. A hope that the exile will come to an end. God is going to going to come himself, the Messiah, deliver his people, bring them back from exile, and bring about a new covenant. That's the the famous passage in Jeremiah of a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way of relating to God in which God's people will not sin against him anymore. Uh, It is a passage of great hope and in the midst of it, this crying out, this suffering, waiting for the end. And Matthew, Matthew looks at Jeremiah's passage and he says, this verse, it's not about Jesus in the first place, but again it's a pattern it's the pattern of uh, God's people suffering and waiting for a deliverer. But if, again, if you're an Israelite reading this, uh, you know Jeremiah 31. And you know that despite the terrible suffering, despite the terrible suffering of uh, the Israelites in exile and the terrible suffering of those people in Bethlehem watching their babies murdered, you know that the, the Messiah is coming. Uh, the Messiah is here. He's fled into exile in Egypt, but he will return. Uh, Jeremiah's uh, prophecy will come true through Jesus. God is in charge. God has promised it. God has demonstrated it time and again through types and pictures. It is not Herod who is in charge. It is God. Herod will do anything to keep the throne, won't he? He's uh, the butcher of babies, He'll even butcher his own babies. Herod will deceive and kill. But the truth is, he has no power. He's made to look an idiot, isn't he? By the one who controls the stars, who commands angels, who fulfills prophecies made centuries before. And who in the end will take Herod's life? Did you notice that? Look down at verse 15 with me. Joseph takes his family off to Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And verse 19, after our passage, after Herod died. Do you see? Herod looks like this powerful man, has the power of life and death in his hands over a whole nation, and yet has no power over his own death. Herod the Great becomes Herod the Dead. Seen from the limited perspective of his own day, Herod looked like the most powerful man out there. You stand with him or you stand against him. You can totally understand how in that moment, the people of Jerusalem preferred the brutal rule of Herod to the reign of a little baby. To all appearances, it makes total sense to side with power. But Herod couldn't hold back death, could he? Indeed, he couldn't do anything unless God allowed it. The God who knows the hearts of men and is always two steps ahead. That was then. What lessons are we to draw from this passage? I think the first is obvious, isn't it? What king do you want? Matthew offers us two visions of power. Herod a man prone to at the use of deceit and awful abuses of power in order to control others and retain his throne. And the thing is, Herod is a bit of a, a sort of Bible caricature, isn't he? I mean, he is like the sinister, evil kind of character in a, in a sort of Marvel comic movie. You know what I mean? But the reality is he's not that unusual, is he? In the history of humanity, he's not that unusual for a man who has absolute power. You think of politicians lying on their expenses claims to, to get more money, the people who will lie in their manifestos in, in the election coming up in a few weeks' time, the things people will do to get and keep power. Or perhaps you go back a bit further in time to the time when kings in our country had the sort of power Herod had. Immediately came to mind Richard III. You know the story? Uh, Richard III uh, is sort of the pro- cr- crown protector of his two nephews who are uh, kings in waiting. And he locks them in the Tower of London for their own safety and then they disappear and he becomes the king. Okay. Or Richard III himself being killed in the War of the Roses, a battle between basically cousins in the royal family desperate to, to take power and killing a third of all the men in the whole of England. In the process. Power is tempting. Power is corrupting isn't it? The things people will do. Herod is eaten up with it. But he's not unusual in his exercise of power. It's written all over history. That is the sort of power the world seeks. And the world abuses. On the other side is the heavenly king. One who identifies with his people, lives amongst his people, suffers with them, is exiled on their behalf and later killed by those in power. But the thing is, he's the king who wins. If the battle is for ultimate power, Herod loses badly, doesn't he? Because his bones have turned to dust somewhere in a grave in the Middle East. Jesus did go to Jerusalem, and he did get killed by the powers that be, but he rose from death. He died to end the exile, as Jeremiah prophesied. He brought God's people back to him, and he inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. A new way of relating to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Death is put to death by Christ, who's raised to indestructible life. Who do we want to be our king? A worldly power? Or Jesus, who appears so weak but is the one who has reigned over death? And if we've chosen Christ, if we're thinking about choosing Christ, we have to then ask the secondary question, what do you expect life to look like as a Christian? It's not an arbitrary question at all, is it? The people of Jerusalem choose Herod despite his brutality Because although he gets to be the king, they get to benefit. They're the cultural elites. They're the people who have sort of secondary power. They're the ones with the wealth. They're the ones with the great careers. They're the ones who love the status quo. Jesus may be an attractive king. He's gentle, he's humble, he's compassionate. And he overcomes death, but but he's also a revolutionary, as it were. He turns ideas of power on their head. He says... that the the have-nots will become the haves, and the haves will become the have-nots. And if you're a have, that's a scary proposition, isn't it? That's why the children are allowed to be killed. Because Herod and the elites uh, wage war on Jesus, and these children are collateral damage. And it has always been the case, hasn't it? You think of uh, Saul in, in Acts, who is locking up and killing Christians. And Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because the church belongs to Jesus. We are his. And when you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. But similarly, if you want to hurt Jesus, if you want to kill the king, then you kill his people. So it was for the early church. Read about Nero and Domitian and others who sought to eradicate Christianity. Why? Because the Christians said, I will not declare that Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And there you have the alternative power. And, And the world doesn't like it. Caesar held the sword. He imprisoned. He can kill Christians with impunity. But it is no threat to Christians who know that they will live forever with Christ. But the world hates the claim that Jesus is king. He threatens the status quo, he threatens to turn everything upside down and threatens the power and authority of those who have it. The early church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of Christians is seed. And what he meant was, as Christians were killed by the state in the Roman Empire, as they calmly faced bears and fires and all sorts of things, Uh, the crowds would look on and wonder that people could face death so calmly. And people sought out the church and they became Christians and the gospel spread everywhere. Because everyone in the world has to face death at some point, don't they? And Herod here uh, uses death as a weapon to terrify people into submission. But you can't terrify people with death who don't fear death. Because if you know Jesus, you have eternity before you. And so you consider uh, things in our own age. You think of the church in China, 60, 70 years ago, a tiny church, uh, dependent on missionaries who were kicked out of the country. And And then the church in China was persecuted horribly, year after year after year. And now the church in China is 100 million people strong and growing fast. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Consider the Islamic State right now in Syria and Iraq, who are beheading Christian children uh, to terrorise Christians into recounting their faith. And these children have grasped this, haven't they? As they say, I will not give up Jesus. They face death. And they know that Jesus will give them life. Why would you convert from Christianity, where you have life forever, to anything else? Our situation is unlikely to ever become that stark in our lifetime. But what of the elites in our own day? Intolerant, socially liberal, depending on postmodern understandings of truth... It, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that the people who, who govern the, the social conversation, the BBC and other media outlets, the politicians who govern, uh, determine policy, uh, should be moving away from Christianity and claims that Jesus is Lord. It has always been that way. I'm not suggesting that we start a revolution, we stick it to the man, we we replace the government, although someone will replace the government in about four and a half months' time. But I'm not suggesting that our form of government is is the problem. Because every form of government in history has suffered from this problem. It doesn't matter who your governments are, they're going to be anti-Christian. Because Jesus, claimed to be king, threatens our power. And so we need to be realistic, don't we? Uh, Jesus is on our side. Uh, We win in the end. But in this world, we will be marginalised, ignored, pilloried, persecuted, shoved to the margins. Uh, Jesus came for the weak and lowly things of the world. And he came as weak and lowly himself. And he calls us to be weak and lowly. To take the path of death to eternal life. That is what it is to have Jesus as King. We must not be deluded. We have lived through extraordinary times of benevolence towards Christians in this country for hundreds of years, but that's, the times have changed. And so, a question for us, I guess, is are we attracted to power? Are we tempted by power uh, in our workplaces, in our homes, and perhaps uh, in society more widely? And if we are, beware becoming Herod and the elites. Finally, uh, a, thought, a, a foot in both camps. Can we be people who have uh, a foot in both sorts of uh, power? I don't think so. See, it used to be the case, didn't it, that you could be a, a mainstream sort of culture maker, a, a sort of Wilberforce character. You could be a politician or a poet or a thinker or a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever you want, and be a robust Christian and people respected it. Maybe even encouraged it. But those days are over, aren't they? The culture is moving against us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't stand up and and challenge the culture, speak against it, speak into it. But we mustn't expect our worldview to be respected or encouraged, if you are a person of integrity at work when others around you are lying and cheating, don't be surprised if people despise you for it. If you live as Christians, as Christ did, as weak and humble and compassionate, uh, if you hold on to biblical worldviews when it comes to relationships and so forth, you will be despised and mocked by the powers that be. And so the challenge comes to us, doesn't it? Do you have a foot in both camps, trying to be socially acceptable on the one side and thoroughly Christian at the same time? Because if you do, you will find the ground shifting beneath you. Like somebody who has one foot on the biblical bank and another foot in in the cultural boat, the boat is moving away from the bank. That stance is going to become very painful to try and hold on to for much longer. For every one of us, the temptation will be to go with the flow, to do things the way the culture does them, to take the path of ease to positions of power and influence in the culture, in our workplaces. Can I encourage you to resist that urge? Live as Christians, and not with Herod, but with Jesus. Our choice is clear. The world hates the church, and always has done. And if we want Jesus to be our king, if we want him to give us life under the new covenant, then we need to be willing to stand with him, to cast our whole lot in with him, prepared to stand up and speak out, even if it means we die, for the gospel, because death is the path to life. And one final word, if I may, occurred to me as I was sitting there a few minutes ago. Some of us will be in positions of power Perhaps in our workplaces, perhaps in church, perhaps in our homes. I wonder, will we emulate Jesus in the way he uses power? Power to become weak. Authority to become humble. To love people and to represent people and to serve people. And dads, will you do that with your children and with your wives? Bosses, will you do that with your employees? Will you be radically different to the culture around us as Jesus was in the face of Herod? Shall we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to be one of us. And you call us to, uh, to be the last, to be servants, uh, to be weak to be the shameful things of the world but we praise you that uh, you will give us a, a glorious inheritance in the end and we pray that you'd help us to be like you in the way you use authority and power help us not to seek the power of the, of the world the way the world does but help us to use our, our power for, uh, for good uh, in loving other people we know the world will hate us our loving Lord Jesus, praise to you that you love us and that there's nothing the world can do to us that you will not remedy in the end. And please give us strength and give us eyes to see by faith all that you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen.